Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I'm Eki Tepsipornchai. Well, brother, it's good to uh, be back with you this morning. We've got a really good topic. Um, we were talking just before recording. I was saying that this could, someone could cover this topic every week and it would be good <laughs> yeah. and necessary. Um, right, right. And, and that's hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those people who just said in their mind, hermeneutics, uh, why don't you tell us what hermeneutics is? It's a big fancy word, but it's not really as complicated as it sounds. Yeah, hermeneutics is just the principles of Bible interpretation. And I tell people all the time, especially people in our church, it sounds like a really technical term, but when you get into what those principles are of Bible interpretation, there's actually nothing mystical about it. Uh, When you step through each uh, of the principles and and consider the different genres in the Bible and how we determine context and all that, it starts to make sense. And and you start to recognize that really these are just rules of general communication. Um, So same thing that we apply day to day, but people tend to throw out uh, common sense when they approach the scriptures, thinking that they can just interpret however they want and take whatever context and and put it in there or take something out of context and, and interpret it from there. But really, we interpret the scriptures just as we sensibly do interpret any other piece of writing in our day-to-day lives. Um, Now, there are some rules that we go in uh, with regards to scripture, and it's all dependent upon upon what we know is true about God. God is true. Uh, We know God does not lie, and we know God gives promises, and he keeps all those promises, Uh, those kinds of things. Uh, He's not going to contradict himself. So knowing those truths about God, we can apply them to to scripture and use that as kind of boundaries. But aside from that, just interpreting the scriptures just requires the same common sense most people would put into interpreting an email that you got or reading a a news article, you know, or any kind of written piece of communication. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, It's like when people pick up the newspaper or that uh, novel they're reading or, you know, a historical book. A science magazine, they know how to read all of those things, but when they pick yeah. up the Bible, some people just go stupid. Uh, it, yeah. It's like they, they've forgotten everything. Um, and yeah, so it's an important topic. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. There are different uh, hermeneutic pl- uh, single out there, singular, right? So her- hermeneutic single is um, which set of rules you're using hermeneutics plural is just the the general definition you describe so for instance there is a feminist hermeneutic um you know they're right and so um we both share the same hermeneutic because it's the biblical one and the right one (laughs) um so why why don't you just tell us a little bit about that why we use the one we use uh and then what we're going to do this morning uh, well, it's morning when we're recording anyway. Um, I posted on Twitter what are some of the uh, what are some of the passages of the passages of scripture that are most taken out of context or misquoted or misused? And so we're just gonna go through those and we're gonna talk about uh, the the right understanding, how you get to that, and maybe that'd be helpful for people. But why don't we start with what hermeneutic we use and why we use that as opposed to, let's say, the feminist hermeneutic. 
Yeah, we, we follow what um, is sometimes called the literal, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic. And uh, that's a lot of words there. Um, we interpret scripture literally. And, and when I say literally, it doesn't mean that there's no symbolism, um, there's no poetry, there's no uh, metaphors and, and things like that. Of course, those things are there. Um, but we interpret literally, really, literally the way the original audience would have understood it. And uh, when we say grammatical, we are following the rules of grammar, uh, especially when it comes to the Greek. Um, and those who know the Greek can get much closer to what the Word of God uh, truly said to understand the grammar and understand the relationship between words, uh, phrases, sentences, paragraphs, um, and, and historical understanding everything in its historical context. In fact, when it comes to hermeneutics, and I'm talking to lay people within the church, I always say the first three rules of hermeneutics is context, context, context. So you want to interpret everything in context, but in order to understand the context, you need to be reading things uh, literally, uh, paying attention to grammar, and and also being mindful of just uh, the, the different genres. Uh, poetry is not going to be understood literally the same way as narrative. Um, and, and there are times where, for instance, um, Jesus is speaking to Satan when he's being tempted. We're not going to take the words of Satan and interpret them to be the words of God. Um, that, that's the, the words of Satan. Um, so when Satan said to Jesus Christ, um, bow down and, and worship me and all these things will be yours, I've seen that quoted and put on devotionals just by themselves, um, almost as a oh, prosperity goodness. verse for Christians. Okay, that, that's what that's what Satan said to Jesus. That that was not what God said to said to us. Um, so we also want to recognize the the writers, who the writers were, um, their their lives, their context. You know, when Paul writes to Galatians or when he writes to Ephesians or Corinthians or Philippians. Those are places he's been, right? So you can actually look at the historical context of his time that he was there, especially when you look through the book of Acts and kind of piece together kind of the background historical context there. When he talks about being in prison, well, we, we have a historical context there and and when and how that that happened. So the hermeneutic that, that we employ is really just trying to understand the word in its context written um, as the original audience would have understood it, and understanding that while the word is addressed directly to an audience that didn't include us, God intended it for us. And so there are ways to understand that and draw out principles uh, for application for today. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, one of the things I think I've noticed, and you probably have too, uh, and anyone who is on social media has probably noticed this, you can generally tell, not always, but you can generally tell when someone says, no, this verse means this, and the, they're, they're, the result, what they type, uh, come came from a quick Google search or yeah. what they feel like right. because it's yeah. missing really important context. It's very interesting. I've seen you know, people correct solid theologians who have been in the ministry for decades solid mm -hmm. pastors who train and teach these things who've been in the ministry for decades um, with just really silly kind of things. And you think, well, uh, do, do you realize that the, the, the man you're correcting, you know, he, he, he knows the language right. has been studying this for 20 years. Uh, right. He knows all the context right. and clearly based on what you've just said it, what you think it means, you've probably never even read that, that book, right. In the Bible, right. you, you you, mm -hmm. You've just gone to Google. and uh, I, But I see a lot of that, and I feel like it's increasing with the increase of kind of so-called progressive Christianity. H has that been your mm -hmm. experience? Yeah, I, I think we are, we've seen a rise of, um, and we mentioned this recently, standpoint hermeneutics. 
uh, standpoint hermeneutics is basically interpreting things through your experiences, uh, through your feelings, through um, your value system, and and laying that over scripture. And it's not so different from what we've seen a rise of recently, where people are arguing, um, not us, that um, that the Bible needs to be understood from different um, ethnic viewpoints. You get a bunch of different ethnic groups together and you find out, okay, what does this mean to this community? What does this mean to the Asian community, to the Caucasian community, to the African-American, uh, whatever it may be, and pull all those together. And then you'll have a fuller uh, view of what the scriptures mean. Well, the problem with that is that the original audience interpreted things right in context. They didn't have to go to different communities of people and find out, well, what does this mean to you? Because unless I know what it means to you, then I don't know what it, it really means. Um, so that's nonsense. The, the truth is objective. It is outside of us. And as long as we uh, read the scriptures and we understand context and we study it carefully, put together all the connections and, and uh, understand grammar and all that, you can come to an objective interpretation. And you and I are examples that we we didn't study together. We didn't go to the same schools. You're, you're getting your demon now at Master Seminary, but prior to that, you, you didn't go to Master Seminary. Um, you came out of a different background than I, and I could go to places like China. I can go to places like Czech Republic and same thing, um, different backgrounds, different culture, different languages. And yet we come to the same interpretation of scripture. And why is that? Because we, we treat scripture the same as a written work that needs to be understood literally according to uh, gra grammatical rules and in its historical context. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, you, anywhere in the world you can go where believers have taken the word seriously and have taken time to study it. And, you know, generally speaking, they'll come up with the same conclusions. So, and of yeah. course, church history proves that as well, right? Yes. Yes. Um, so it, it's really important. I mean, we think, of, I think of Tom Buck, who, who uh, maybe he, he's the one that coined the phrase, the, the woke hermeneutic, right? Um, mm -hmm. again, the lens by which you view scripture rather than we, we never want to view scripture through any lens other yeah. than asking the question, what does it say? Who, to whom was it spoken? What were they supposed to understand? What's the grammar? And, and that's all the, the, the questions of hermeneutics. So, well, let's just dive into some of these passages. Uh, guys have been very gracious and a lot of people have responded. Um, I, because, uh, I'm going to. I'm going to engage in some partiality here. Uh, I'm going to pick my wife's verse first <laughs> because it's a good one. Wise. Um, I think that's wise. <laughs> Matthew yeah. 18, 20. Matthew 18, 20. Let me read it. We know it. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Man, yes. th th this one, um, I I've been guilty uh, myself growing up in the church as a young believer Lots of us have been um, uh, lots of small town, small church pastors. You know, when you look into the congregation on Sunday morning and you see, you know, three, five, 10, 20 people, it, you know, he gets up there and he says, yeah. oh, don't worry, dear saints, that we are so small because where there are two or three gathered, there he is in our midst. Well, right, right. <clears throat> the problem with this is that... Um, if this passage is true, it means someone is getting disciplined in the church. Well, why don't you talk to us, Eki, right. about let, let's go to this passage and and because it comes up. Why does it not mean, why can we not use this passage to mean if they're just a couple of us, Jesus must be there in our, in our midst? Right. 
Right. Yeah, I've seen this passage um, also used to um, uh, be an argument against uh, the congregation, uh, a group of believers gathering together, that as long as you have one or two other believers with you, and, and even just one, if, if it's just one, two believers together, well, you've got the church. Jesus is there with you. And so that's the church. Well, the problem is you go back to verse 15, and uh, we read, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. Now, that's following Old Testament rules. Going back to the Old Testament, the laws of Moses, when you bring a charge, you need to have witnesses. You can't just go off the statements of one person. Okay, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, and here we go, tell it to the church. So right there we see the um, very clear implication that there's a larger group of people that are gathered together. And this, by the way, is only the second time Jesus brings up the word church, right? So the first time is two chapters back in Matthew chapter 16, after Peter makes the confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, said to him, on this rock, I will build my church. And I've had this conversation recently about what is church. Church is the Greek for gathering, assembly, or congregation, all right? Um, so when Jesus said, I will build my church, the idea is that his followers would gather together. So verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, that's uh, the original person and the witnesses with him. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whenever whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed on heaven. And that, in this context, is talking about the whole um, process of um, of church discipline and restoration. Um, if someone has been has been bound on earth, they will be treated as bound in heaven. If they're loosed on earth, they're, they're restored um, on earth, they're restored in heaven. Verse 19, and I'm, by the way, I'm not talking about losing salvation all right this is this is the context of, of just church discipline you put someone out in order for um the de the destruction of the flesh as paul describes it um that uh, they would uh, they would lose out on the, the the fruit and the blessings of being with the church body it would cause them to repent and come back and then verse 19 again i say to you so that word again starting in verse 19 again i say to you it shows that there's a connection between what he's just been talking about what he's and what he's adding on top of that again i say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything um that they may ask it shall be done for them by my father who is in heaven for where there are two or three for where two or three have gathered together in my name i am there in their midst so this is uh, god providing his approval um, over the church discipline and the church restoration process. If they repent, you restore them back. Um, if they refuse to repent, you move to the next stage. And ultimately, if they continue to refuse to repent, um, even after it's been brought to the church, you excommunicate them. You treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. That is the commandment of God to us. And he provides his approval, though it is a process that is handled by people within the church. Yeah. Amen. So it's kind of a scary passage, not one you want to no. uh, just be claiming, right, uh, for a small group. But I, I mean, this is just a good example, though, of how, and I think a lot of people are really well-meaning, right? Um, yeah. But if you look at the statistics of believers who read their Bible, it, it's shockingly low. And I think that is part, yeah. that's a big part of the problem, right? So um, people will uh, often Christians will look for verses that are encouraging, that are uplifting, that are promises. I mean, there are whole books you can buy of just all the promises in scripture. Well, the problem is, 
I mean, as you talked about the one earlier that that, that you've seen that was quoted as as something good, but actually it was the words of Satan. The problem is, if you don't read your Bible, you're probably taking a lot of scripture out of context and twisting it. And and I think that yeah. I mean, obviously that matters, but mm-hmm. as believers, that it 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 should be a serious thing for us. We should have such a reverence for God's word that we would want to be diligent in making sure we're using these verses properly. Um, so that that's yeah. a big one. Um, Daryl Harrison posts one, which is like a fantastic one. <laughs> Let's go to that one next. Yeah. Uh, I, I love Daryl. He just gets right in there. First John four, eight, uh, first John four, eight. Let me get there. Let me pull it up here. It's, it's about the love of God. And uh, yep. we, we know this one comes up all the time, right? Here it is, 1 John 4, 8. Um, the one who does not love God, the sorry, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, yeah. we've never heard that taken out of context, have we? <laughs> that, that is the um, unbeliever's favorite verse, um, because unbelievers want to believe in, in including everyone, being inclusive. And um, those who are um, nominal Christians, uh, really uh, unbelievers described as Christians, oftentimes they love going to this verse. And I remember when I was in Atlanta, Georgia, I've told this story before. I was down there for the G3 conference. You were there with me, but a number of us went out to um, eat dinner and there was um, a lady and a, and a couple of people with her. Uh, and this lady in particular was challenging us saying that we're, we've got a false gospel. And I just asked her, well, what is the gospel? Uh, what, what, t- tell me what you think it is. And she said, well, the gospel is that God is love. And that's what we need to be telling people, that God loves them. And my response to her is, uh, it was that, well, if that's the gospel message, no one is saved. Um, and that's the reality. And, and I think we can even see that in this context. So taking a look, going back to verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. Okay, stop right there. Who is John addressing? John is addressing believers. You can go all the way back to the beginning of this letter and know that John is addressing believers. He is not addressing unbelievers. Let us love one another. And where does this come from? Well, you think about John wrote the gospel of John in John chapter 13. I want to say somewhere around verse 35. um, He said, they shall know us by our love for one another. And he's not talking about necessarily the unbeliever or your neighbor, though that is important. We know that you are to love your neighbor as yourself, but there is a special love that disciples are to have for one another, uh, especially within the church. That's what should unite us. So verse seven, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. Well, if you read this entire letter, um, John starts to lay out the the case uh, in in multiple places, I believe, where it, he says, if you if you shut off your heart to a brother in need, um, then the love of God is not in you. So it's very much in co- context uh, with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, verse nine: By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. And, and that's the death and crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And guess what? Right there in verse 10, if you want to make sense of verse 10, you have to understand what propitiation is. Jesus Christ became the object that appeased the wrath of God that was due to us for our sins. And you see that phrase there, for our sins. That means to understand Jesus Christ, you have to understand sin, why Jesus Christ came, 
and the value that uh, that that his death on the cross, um, what it accomplished with regards to us and our nature as sinners, how he bore our sins and he gave us his righteousness. So even in this this context, you cannot understand God's love without understanding the love of Jesus Christ, and you can't understand the love of Jesus Christ without understanding his work on the cross and why it was necessary. Yeah, it, this is an extremely important example of why we have to ask the question, who, to whom is the text speaking, right? right. Who is yeah. the author speaking to? Is the author speaking to or about Gentiles or unbelievers? Is the author speaking to uh, purely a Jewish audience? And does that matter in the context? Is, the, is he speaking to all believers? Um, yeah, it, it, enti- it changes the, the meaning of the passage entirely. And so, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and let me... Let me add this, because I'm, I'm just looking at this chapter, going all the way down to the end of this chapter, verse 20. Um, I, I was mentioning the the hatred of brothers. Um, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this command we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. That is talking about fellow believers. Yeah. And so it, so it's 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 really important that we understand that. And it, here's something else. So there there are places in scripture where we are given uh, glimpses and understandings of God's attributes, such as his love. And so it, for yeah. the person who might look at this and say, oh, well, see, God is love. And so therefore, God would never send anyone to hell. That's not a loving thing to do. We hear that argument a lot. Again, again, you, you can't take the principle and divorce it entirely from the passage. And then when we take, uh, when, when we take teachings like that, we, we're looking at God's attributes, which we find in various different passages. You can't pit them against any other of his attributes in Scripture. So just to right. give you as an example, yeah. um, for those who would say, oh, see, right there, it says God is love. Well, first of all, you're misusing the passage. Eki just explained to us why it doesn't mean what you're trying for it to mean. But then when you go to places like, well, you know, okay, John 3, 16, we all know that, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son in the world to judge the world. Of course, most people stop right there. See, God didn't send, but let's just keep going. But that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Right. Obviously, right. that's a judgment by God. Okay, so God is love, but then go down to verse 36 in in, in this, right? John 3, 36. Mm-hmm. Yep. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Right. So context matters. Is God yep. love? Yes. Absolutely. Yep. Is that all that God is? No. Um, and it's kind of a silly notion because we also experience and uh, our makeup is of different emotions and different characteristics. Um, and so you can't separate those things. So I would just have to be really careful when we try to, um, I almost don't like the term cherry pick anymore because it, it's lost yeah. its meaning. But when we pick out little portions of scripture as a proof text, but uh, they're contrary to the whole teaching of Scripture, uh, then you're going to end up with some kind of weird doctrine that's that's not biblical um, at the least, and maybe even antichrist in its worst. 
Yeah, and and one other thing that just came to mind. I mean, as we we're talking about love, and uh, you know, God is love, and this passage out of First John four really emphasizing love for fellow brethren. Well, someone's going to bring up the other uh, statement that I just made, the other command. Well, love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, love your neighbor as yourself. But even when we think about the first passage we covered, which was about church discipline, um, what is it that the church was supposed to do if a person refuses to repent even to the church? Well, you are to treat that person as a Gentile and a tax collector. That already shows uh, there's a distinction between how you treat the brothers and sisters within the church and those who have been excommunicated out of the church. It doesn't mean you stop loving them, but there's a different kind of love that you have to express towards those put out. What is that kind of love? Well, the love is to call them to repent. The love is to call them to do what is right. And when we think about our neighbors, the one who do not know Christ, how do we love them? Well, we love them by looking for opportunities to share the gospel. Um, certainly, we may do nice things for them. We may invite them over to lunch or dinner. Uh, may uh, you know, if the wife is baking something, bake something a little extra for the neighbors. Do those things, uh, but do those things with the idea that you want to help bring them to Christ. So understand that when we talk about God being love, um, the other passage that comes to mind, Ephesians two, you know, talks about how we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We followed after the world, followed after Satan. We we're by nature children of wrath and sons of disobedience. And then verse four says, but God um, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So you really just cannot understand the love of God unless you understand first what it was we deserved and why it was he sent his son and what it was that his son accomplished on that cross. Amen. Before we go into uh, the, the next one, Eki, uh, I, I just thought about something that with the previous verse, we were talking about where two or three or more gathered. It, it, it it's actually really funny. Um, Vody Bauckham, uh, talks about this in one of the sermons he did a long time ago. And he just talks about the faulty logic behind it. it you know, God did give us a brain, right? Uh, and it's good yeah. if we use those things. And so the, the, it, if you believe that there has to be two or three, if you're taking that verse to use it that way, then what do you do when you're by yourself? Can you not pray because Jesus can't right. hear you because right. there's not at least two? Are you saying that God is not with you? Right. R right. Uh, you know, and J Jody, uh, Jody, uh, it's early. I haven't Vody. had all my coffee yet. <laughs> Vody jokes and talks about how, you know, if someone wants to get up in the morning and pray and it's just them, that how they have to put on their robe and, you know, dredge through the weather and to go to their next door neighbor and knock on the door and say, hey, you know, I just really want to pray, but I need two or three. Can we get together? Yeah. So God to hear a prayer. Right. Um, right. And so we just we got to think through the implications of what we're saying. A lot of times yeah. if we follow the implications um, of what we're saying, we'll come to the conclusion of, oh, that can't be biblical. Right. Right. Um, and, and of course, the other thing is it forgets the omnipresence of God. Uh, mm -hmm. there, there is no place and no time where Jesus is not present. Um, he's present in all places at all times. Um, yeah. And so that that's, that, that's just another, uh, we, we've got to use our brains when we think about this kind of thing. Yep. Okay. Well, let's go to a next one. Uh, it, huge, huge one. Uh, several people mentioned this one, Matthew 7, 1. Matthew 7, 1. Yep. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. It's not nice to judge, Eki. <laughs> so yeah, that's right. Yeah, don't once, judge once you break down, once you break down this passage. 
Yeah, I, you know, this is an interesting one because, um, and I was trying to look up some other, uh, other verses that we have, but there, you know, this is, let me say this first before we get into the passage. The, the subtitles in your Bible are not inspired, but they are helpful. And it's generally good to just notice what it says, because for the most part, they give you an idea of the context of the passage. Now, they're not always great. Um, but just to say they're in there and they're helpful when you let, listen, let me just read through this whole passage here. Uh, one through six, do not judge so that you will not be judged for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how no. can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet, and they will tear you to pieces. And then, of course, he goes into prayer and the golden rule. What this is not saying is mm -hmm. that you can't make any judgments and mm -hmm. that we see that in the passage. I'm just trying to, uh, and we'll get into the meaning of the passage, but if you look at this, it doesn't say not to judge. It's a, a warning about being judged the way you judge. So just yeah. in the passage. Um, and I think, you know, when people, the most common use of this, and I think let's just address that, um, that yeah. issue is to say, you can't say something is right or wrong. Yep. Right. Right. Yeah. You can't, you but, can't judge someone's decisions, their way of life. Um, you can't call something a sin. Um, you just have to love them and, and, and judge and not judge them and say, you know what? Oh, only God knows. That's, that's usually the mindset. Yeah. And, and so they take this and again, this is just that one verse. Well, I, I mean, it, it is true in, in the context, we, we aren't judging, uh, for instance, people's eternal resting place. I can't yeah. judge the hearts and the souls of people. I can't mm -hmm. tell you for with great certainty um, as though I'm the determiner if someone's going to spend eternity in heaven or not. And yet, when you go to places like the book of Jude, we most certainly are encouraged to be aware of false teachers, right? Mm -hmm. And so yeah. mm -hmm. you have to make a judgment as yep. to whether or not someone is walking in the ways of Christ or they're not. Now, we need to be careful that we're not becoming just fruit inspectors. Um, but there are plenty of passages, again, when we look at these things, that talk about judging righteously. Um, yep. I can pull a couple of these up just real quick, and we can go to them, unless you got your fingers on them there. Yeah, let, let me uh, let me address this, uh, Matthew 7. I, I, th I think there's some great uh, supporting passages. But if you read this entire context, um, it, it it is about um, be beware of hypocrisy that you're guilty of the sin that you're accusing someone else of, and that's why in verse three, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So you're only looking at other people's sins; you're not even noticing your own. Or how can you say to your brother, "Let me take the speck out of your eye," and behold, the log is in thy in, in your own eye? Verse five, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So for the way people want to apply, do not judge, they wouldn't even want verse five there. 
they wouldn't want any kind of addressing of what's in the brother's eye. But no, verse five tells us, address your own. And once you can see clearly, mm -hmm. then you can address the speck uh, that is in their eye. And you mentioned a great example about, um, about the fruit of false teachers. That's right here in the same chapter. Matthew chapter seven, going down to, uh, let's see, verse 15 says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Guess what that requires? That requires judging. And Jesus is telling us, this is how you will know those who are true versus those who are false. And, and then he and says it other again in verse 20. To. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He, he repeats yeah. it again, yeah. two, two or three verses later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so again, if you're cherry picking, Pat, they never get down to verse five. And so, I mean, this is a good place just for those of us who do love scripture, you've got to read past the, the, the verse you're looking at, right? Um, you, yeah. you, you look at the verse, you look at the terms used, you look at the phrases used, you look at the paragraph, you look at the chapter, right? And you've got to do those things because it, you read down, well, in this instance, you, you only get down to two verses, three verses, and then it says, basically, yeah, take the log out of your brother's eye after you've right. taken it out of your own. That That's not a prohibition. That's right. a look at yourself first. Um, right. but, but you're right. They I've never, ever heard it get to verse five when someone's saying is judge not lest you be judged. Now, you know, I, now it, this would be interesting, uh, your thoughts on this. A lot of people that bring this up just simply aren't Christians. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of them don't even claim to be Christian. How... How do you respond to that? Is it I my view on social media, and I'm increasingly taking this view, is oftentimes it's just not worth responding to, um, because <laughs> if you're not a believer, um, you don't, yeah. it, you know, you're not. You're, their first problem is not that they misunderstand this passage; it's that they are still an enemy of God, and they need the gospel. Uh, but secondly, I know they don't yeah. understand the Bible because they're right. not Christian. Right. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? How do you respond to someone who says, judge not lest you be judged? Yeah, and, and you know, on social media, we have to, I mean, if we responded to every, everyone, that would be our job, just responding on social media. So I recognize a lot of these folks, <laughs> excuse me, I recognize a lot of these folks um, are not really interested in the truth. And so there's the whole throwing your pearls before swine, but sometimes take a moment, share the gospel, um, or sometimes just to address the direct point, I'll, I'll just leave the, I'll just use the word context. I'll say, um, if you read the larger context, that's not what it says. And I'll just leave it at that. Um, they're, they're not really interested in dialogue. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and they would ask him questions, they weren't really interested in the answer. They were just trying to trap him. And, and no matter how Jesus would respond, they already had a plan for how they would trap him. And so that's what happens a lot um, on social media. Mm. Um, you're not there face to face with the person, but every once in a while, if someone is asking a genuine question or they just want to understand, um, yeah, I might go into it and uh, then ultimately share the gospel. Let them know that uh, you know who Jesus Christ is, why he came, and what's being demanded um, of those uh, who are sinners. Um, the demand is this: that you repent and put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have um, I have had uh, a fellow. Christian, who I believe is sincere, um, she quoted to me 1 Corinthians uh, 5.12, which is kind of a similar passage where Paul writes, 
for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? And then verse 13 says, for those who are outside, God judges. All right. So she has quoted that to me as an encouragement to me not to say anything about sinners. Well, or or to even try to judge the uh, you know what uh, what people do outside outside of the church, you know the problem is once again if you look at the larger context, um, and and you'll recognize this. Uh, Paul in First Corinthians five, starting in verse nine, says, "I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people." Okay, he said, "I did not mean all with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with the idolaters, then you would have to go out of the world. So in other words, he said, I didn't. I told you not to associate with immoral people. I'm not talking about those in the world who are who are sinners, who are not a part of the church. Otherwise, you'd have to be a monk, basically. You'd have to be taken out of the world. Verse yeah. 11, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So guess what that requires? That requires discernment and judgment uh, with regards to those who call themselves brothers but are living this way. And then verse 12, he says, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? And he adds, remove the wicked man from amongst yourself. So in other words, the one who is in your presence that is acting this way, you need to remove them from the body of Christ. And guess what Paul calls him? A wicked man. All right. And then later in chapter six, we don't have to go far in verse nine. It says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, uh, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. So if you were to take the spirit that people want you to take it in, when they say, do not judge, they you couldn't evenly apply that across the context because it wouldn't make sense. But they don't want to pay attention to the context because the context basically contradicts the way they're trying to use it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, you know, if you go to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter four or five, um, I think it's chapter five, where he's talking about being imitators of God and how there's a difference between those yeah. who are in the world and those who aren't. I mean, you get down to, in fact, let me just bring that up real quick. Uh, we'll get there. So it's chapter five and... Yeah, here we go. Uh, verse 11. So he's talking about unbelievers and do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them. Yeah. Well, you know, how do you do that if you aren't making judgments right, about right. what's light and what's dark? I mean, so these are mm -hmm. all um, I mean, mostly what we're talking about right now is just reasoning with uh, the full knowledge of the scriptures. Right. And if you're not reading your Bible, yeah. you're guaranteed yeah. to take things out of context. You're guaranteed to pit some verses against other verses uh, if you if you just aren't reading your Bible. But in terms of just plain scripture, if you go to John 7, uh, let's see, John 7, 20 to 24, John 7, 24, it says, do not, this is Jesus speaking, right? Do not judge according to appearance, yeah. but judge mm -hmm. with righteous judgment. Here is a command yeah. to judge. I mean, you just... I never hear that one quoted, right? Uh, next to right, judge, let's right. judge. So it, this really goes back to your very first statement about hermeneutics: context, context, context. 
it the grammar matters the context matters the context of i mean not and not just the immediate context but the broader context right i mean you if you start in the middle of ephesians right you could very easily misunderstand that paul is speaking to believers often about the character and nature of unbelievers right so you've got to read yeah. large sections uh of 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 the scripture to make sure you get the right context. Yeah. Well, let's see what other ones we got here. We got just a couple minutes and we'll wrap up. Is there any pr particular ones that, uh, that you see all the time? Uh, those were, um, those were some of the major ones. Um, you, you know, I, that person, sometimes you get um, people out there claiming Christ and they've got uh, food limitations. They say you shouldn't eat pork. You shouldn't oh, do this, do one. that. They might, yeah, they might quote uh, the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament restrictions uh, against certain types of food. Well, that's when you're just taking, um, when, when you're just not paying attention to the context of the Old Testament versus the New Testament and uh, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and even direct statements uh, in the New Testament, both in Acts and the book of Mark, that um, all foods are are now clean, and and essentially the um, you know if you if, if you were to take those uh, commands out of the book of Leviticus and make them for today, well, you're failing to understand that those were part of the of the law. Those were part of the Mosaic covenant um, that Jesus Christ fulfilled and went to the cross and and died to pay the penalty for everyone's sins. He brought an end to the old covenant. He brought in the new covenant. And we know that with the new covenant, um, there is greater freedom from a lot of those restrictions. Now, we've had a series on the Ten Commandments, um, and we made the argument that uh, much of what we see represented uh, in the law represents God's righteousness, and therefore it carries forward. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. So a lot of what we see in terms of the moral aspects of the law um, are things that we continue to obey. So people will make the same argument uh, with you know with the feminist hermeneutic or people who are trying to argue for the LGBTQ that um, if they don't deny it outright they might say that was just an Old Testament thing and now in the New Testament we have new freedom and they'll go to Galatians oh this is the big one Galatians chapter um, is it three three twenty eight. Yeah, Galatians uh, chapter three twenty eight. Th this is another big one, and especially with um, feminists and and um, LGBTQ. Verse twenty eight: There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor nor fe female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so, this is often argued to just do away with every single distinction. Um, there, there's no distinctions of male and female. There's no distinction of roles, whatever have you. Um, the problem is uh, that. You get letters like Ephesians, and Paul is addressing husbands and wives, and they're very distinct roles, right? Um, and, uh, and and you get uh, in, throughout the letters, he still makes distinctions between Jews and, and Greeks. And so when you look at the larger context of Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, um, starting in um, verse 26, for it says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. And and this is a statement of your your new identity in Christ that um, that we are all um, joint heirs. Okay, we we are all equal in value. 
but it does not mean we're equal in function. And it does yeah. not mean that suddenly the design of God uh, for uh, for more male and female suddenly go away. The same Paul that wrote this wrote Romans 1 and talked about how God gave them over to their lusts and gave up what is natural to seek that which is unnatural. This is the same Paul in 1 Corinthians who said that neither um, fornicators, homosexuals, um, all, all those terms that he used will inherit the kingdom. Um, and, and this is uh, the, the same Paul that now writes this passage. So you got to understand, okay, what did he mean here versus what did he mean there? And I would argue that in context here, he is arguing, he is talking about our identity in Christ. Yes, we are we are one in Christ, but there are still roles and distinctions. First Corinthians 12 talks about the different gifts given to the body. Um, and he gives that analogy uh, of the of the hand and the foot and and the uh, you know and and goes on to show that with all the gifts given to the body, we still have distinct roles. So it's ridiculous to to use this kind of verse to eliminate all such distinctions. Yeah, and it's especially interesting in that First Corinthians passage. He even says things like, "What if the whole body were an eye? Where would the hearing be?" Right, mm-hmm. right. And so there are distinct and recognizable parts, but context really answers it. And it, you know, sometimes you don't even have to get to context; J- just reason. Um, yep. You know, are there still Jews in the world? Yes. So clearly this passage didn't eliminate any Jews. It didn't eliminate right. any Greeks. There's still Greeks in the world, although here we would understand that to mean unbelievers uh, traditionally. Yeah. And, and and let me let me jump on that. You know, Jews male, that, female. That, right. Jews that come to confess Christ um, identify themselves as Messianic Jews. And guess what? They're still Jews. In fact, the original believers, when you start from the day of Pentecost and you look at the first generation of believers in Jerusalem, Guess what? They still worshipped in the synagogue. It wasn't until they were driven out, you know, that the persecution started, and the apostle Paul, previously known as Saul, was persecuting the church. But those, Paul still regards himself as a Jew. Yeah. Um, why wouldn't yeah. he? Um, because even though we now distinguish Jews and Christians, Jesus Christ is a Jew. Um, Jesus is the he's the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. So if you're a Jew and you recognize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, there's no reason to suddenly not consider yourself a Jew anymore. The word Christian wasn't coined until the first Gentile church in Antioch um, in Acts chapter uh, 12 or 13, I think it's uh, it's coined. Uh, but so so the it, that, that's still there. Paul, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 still very clearly talks about Jews and refers to Jews as his own brethren, even though um, he, he's referring to those who are not saved. Um, one other um, came to mind. Oh, it, it just escaped me. Um, oh, we're, we're coming close on Easter, Resurrection Sunday. Uh, and, and a lot of times the feminists will point out that the first preachers were actually women. Oh yes. All right. So, so the, the the women that went to the tomb and discovered that Jesus Christ uh, is resurrected, He has risen. They were told to go and report what has happened, uh, you know, to to the apostles. So they were the first preachers. Okay. First of all, reporting what has happened is not the same thing as preaching the truth. And when you go to the day of Pentecost, uh, when the church started, it was Peter who who was who was proclaiming the truth. And when you follow through in the book of Acts, it is men who are who are preaching the truth. Now, that doesn't mean women can't share the gospel, they should. All right? But let's let's understand that reporting that Jesus Christ is risen is not the same thing as being a preacher. Yeah, I mean it it is the same as sending your child to go, you know, 
a wife sending their child to go give the husband a message that that's that's what it is right. now i think that's right. one of those instances where to be honest it's almost always just intentionally twisting the scripture to fit their yeah. their their narrative because you can't get that from the passage no one has ever understood a messenger to have any kind of inherent authority of, of their own in that way uh it's only just been in recent years you know that the feminist movement have you know, gone in and, and tried to, to do yeah, that. I, I wanted and and, and yeah, that by the way is the rationale that Rick Warren used. Um so Rick Warren, um, who says that he recently shifted on this position. He used to be to used to take the biblical position of men and women and the distinct roles and how men only could be preachers. He said in the last few years he shifted because of the scriptures. Um and, and part of his rationale was was, was that the first the first preacher yeah. was actually a woman. Well, no, Rick, that wasn't a preacher. Well, if you listen to Rick, he basically trained every pastor in the world and wrote most of the New Testament himself. So um, he's such a humble guy. But anyway, uh, I don't have a lot of patience for some of that stuff. I want to go back to the food thing um, you were talking about because there are some guys who, you know, when bacon comes up, you know, for instance, they kind of get on the you're not going to heaven because you eat bacon kind of thing. Um, you know, First Timothy four. Uh, this is just this is just for those guys. And I, I have resorted to only just quoting these texts and leaving it there. And I think that's just sometimes what we have to do. First uh, Timothy 4 says, but the spirit explicitly says that in the later time, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Well, yeah. What are these doctrines of demons he's speaking about here? By means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. That's intense. Men who, so this is what they're teaching, men who forbid marriage, Catholic Church would be an example, an advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So mm-hmm. that's that's pretty, pretty plain. Verse four, yep. for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So you, mm-hmm. if you take that view, right, you're, again, you're ripping text out of context, right? The context of the Levitical laws were for God's people. We understand that there were divisions in the law, right? Uh, yeah. You just think about, um, you know, their, the laws that were created just for their society. Well, we're not the nation of Israel. We don't follow those laws, right? Um, you, you can't rip them out of the context. And then you come to the New Testament, and it addresses those things specifically, right? Which Jesus often does, right? Yeah. Uh, where there were restrictions in the Old Testament that have been removed or lifted, or um, greater revelation has been given, it's addressed um, specifically in the New Testament. And this is one of those examples. So not only is it uh, bad hermeneutics, but it is actually evil and doctrine of demons um, to to yeah. press those things upon people. And so, again, it, you know, we're talking about all these verses. And again, I think uh, the, the problem essentially lies that people just within the fact that people just don't know their Bible. Uh, they aren't yeah. reading their Bible. You, you can't just read a couple paragraphs a day and believe that you will come out having a good understanding of scripture. Um, you need to be inundating yourself with the Bible. If you're a believer and you haven't read the entire Bible, you need to make a plan to do that. 
Um, and there's tons of good plans. Um, but you need to have the whole picture from Genesis one, one to revelation 22, 21, I think, um, or 21, 22, something like that. You need to have the whole picture and, and then you can start to synthesize the material. And I think that's another problem too, right? You've got to be able to take what you read in the book of John and what you read in first John and what you read in Ephesians and, and make sure you understand them together. Um, I want to do one uh, other, uh, one other verse uh, before we end this episode. And um, let's see, someone posted this just a few minutes ago. Let me get to it here. And uh, this is for our dear Presbyterian brothers. We love our Presbyterian <laughs> brothers, but I'm going to pick a fight. Even if they don't love us the same way we love them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, they say Reformed Baptists aren't Reformed enough. We say they stopped too short of full Reformation. So uh, verse 38 does often come up in the, in, in the world of baptism. It says, Peter, uh, sorry, verse 39 says, For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to himself. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. It's a fantastic verse. The problem is you didn't mm-hmm. read the verse before it. So what does the verse before it say? Actually, let me start from 37. It says, Now, when they heard this, they were pierced at heart. Okay, who, who were they? Right? So this is when you're reading a verse. Now you got to ask questions. Yeah. Well, Right. Right. The book of Acts, they are the unbelievers being preached to. Right. So that's the context here. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each Mm -hmm. of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Quote, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Well, there you go. The context is adults, obviously, who could respond after the gospel was presented and their response was such that, okay, now we've heard this gospel. What do we do? I mean, there's cognition involved here, right? There was understanding. There was a quickening by the Holy Spirit. They're asking Peter, what do we do? And he says, repent, each of you, and be baptized. So I'm sorry, uh, uh, dear Presbyterian brothers, you can't use this verse uh, to sprinkle babies with. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, agreed. And um, even verse 39 at the end, it says, uh, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And and that has to be tied to their response to, to the gospel. And just to add to that, when they heard this, they were pierced the heart in verse 37. What did they hear? Well, they heard Peter basically present to them that they sent the Christ to die. Um, and uh, that the one that uh, they had yelled, crucify him, crucify him. Um, that was Lord. That That's the one who is Lord, who's sitting at uh, the right hand of, of God the Father. So they came to recognition, and these would have been Jews in Jerusalem. They came to recognition um, that they had rejected the Christ. What to, What shall we do? Repent, and each of you be baptized. So the baptism is for those who repent and for all those who God calls to himself, which is basically those who will repent. So Presbyterians, you're welcome to get your child wet. Just call it a bath instead of a baptism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But, um, well, I hope that this has been helpful for you guys. Uh, you know, any last thoughts, Eki, as we just think about 
hermeneutics, interpreting scripture, yeah. how believers should be reading, what questions they should be asking, right. what would right. be helpful for, for folks? You know, the, the biggest thing is this, um, not only what we talked about, reading it in context, trying to understand it in context, but be part of a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, all right? Um, you, you just quoted a verse about the doctrines of demons and how those things will really dominate the landscape. Well, Ephesians 4.11 tells us that Jesus gave to the church first apostles and prophets who laid the foundation, and then evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. And I believe it's a verse, uh, I want to say it's verse 16 that says, as a result, we are no longer to be children. Um, or is it 14? Let me see. Uh, probably 14. 14. Ephesians, 14. Yeah. yeah, Ephesians 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the deceitfulness and, and cunning cunning schemes of men and, and of demons. And so the, the best way to be able to um, engage in the spiritual war, it's not just engaging with the scriptures the right way, but engaging with the scriptures in the, the context of a church uh, that, that are given gifted men to be able to teach and preach the word of God so that you may continue to be equipped the right way. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've run across people who have decided to do all this work on their own without a church, and they come out with just extreme and some crazy views um, that are not balanced by the gifted men that Jesus Christ has provided to the church. Amen. I Go back to the first Corinthians passage, and we have the picture of the body. There's no such thing as a loner Christian. That, that was right. never God's intention or plan. Well, thank you guys for listening. And until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.